Before I call the Honourable Member for Barara, I remind the House that this is the Honourable Member's first speech, and I ask the House to extend to him the usual courtesies. I call the Member for Barara. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As a child, the sound of my mother's footsteps coming towards my bedroom to wake me in the morning was a reassuring feature of daily life. Inevitably, I was awake before she made the door, but the rhythm, the sound and the intensity of her walk were unmistakable. Each morning, the moment would arrive when she'd fling the door open with that effervescent greeting, time to rise and shine. <laughs> Twenty years ago this month, my mother approached my room to wake me, but it was with a very different sound, pace and tempo. Seared on my mind from that night was the speed of her approach and her scream as she flung the door open of my bedroom sobbing, Dad's gone. Dad's gone. I got up from my bed to comfort my mum, trying to calm her. I went down the hall to my father's office, where he worked late into the night for his clients. There I found his pyjamas in a pile, and on the glass-topped table in the hall was a note. Like so many of the notes from my father, written in red pen on the back of a used envelope. It said simply, I'm sorry, Sylvia. I just can't cope. Love, John. I felt a great emptiness ripping at my stomach. I went to the garage and saw the car was missing. We called the police, and later they came round to tell us they'd found my father's body at the bottom of the gap at Watson's Bay. That's the powerful and profoundly sad opening to Julian Lees's maiden speech on the 14th of September 2016, almost five years to the day when the newly sworn-in Liberal member for the seat of Barara stood up in the federal parliament and shared the devastation of the suicide that rocked his family in the mid-90s. Julian was good enough to accept my invitation to come on the podcast to coincide with Are You OK Day, which is a federally funded initiative to encourage conversations about mental health, to ask the question, are you OK? And as Julian tells me in the interview, to ask the even more important question for someone who you think is showing signs of odd or worrying behaviour, to ask the more difficult question, are you thinking about killing yourself? That's the question Julian wished he had have asked his dad. It's the question I wish I had have asked my best man. I did an episode on his suicide. I think it was episode 13 or 14 of the podcast and the eulogy I delivered for him. But certainly those regrets for those of us left behind, we do, we do wish we could have our time over. So if you're one who really is feeling the strain at the moment, really do reach out because we want you to. And even more importantly, reach out to people who know what they're doing, like Lifeline 131114. There's Beyond Blue as well. There's doctors. There's emergency departments. There's equivalent phone lines in countries around the world. So please, for those of us who love you, give us a chance and don't keep it a secret. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we 
Speakola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to the Speakola podcast. That is me, Tony Wilson, and we are six. Speakola's had its birthday. Huge celebrations here in lockdown in Melbourne, involving me, my wife, my four children, a visiting lorikeet, some silent contemplation of speeches through headphones, and this episode, this wonderful episode with Julian Lisa, the Liberal MP who is the member for Barara, who delivered a maiden speech that rocked the internet, that went around Australia and the world. Before we get to Julian and his amazing speech, if you want to give us a sixth birthday present, and it is just me who makes the website and the podcast, the sourcing of the guests, the editing, all in all, it's a very time-consuming hobby. And this year, I've made it less of a hobby by allowing people to pay me if they want to. And that person might be you who wants to give us a sixth birthday present. Well, if you do, go to speakola.com forward slash donate. Or Patreon, that's a site where you can offer a monthly patronage to an artist or a podcast that you like. And if I am that artist and you like my podcast or my writing or you want to support me generally, go to patreon.com forward slash speakola. It's in the show notes as well. And there's different tiers of membership you can go for. You can give us three bucks a month. Or you can give us 20 bucks a month. Or to be honest, you can give any amount you like per month. But they're the three tiers I set up. And really, what you get for your tiers, I have said that anyone who does the top tier will get a signed book sent to them, which is really the least I can do. But honestly, whether you give $3 or $20, I'm not really going to start differentiating between members. I'm going to keep making the podcast free. I'm going to keep making the website free. So really, it's just extending a few coins in gratitude if you are feeling so inclined. We do have an avocado supporter. It is called Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados. And I'm looking here at the Purple Skin Avocado webpage, which is on the greenskinavocados.com.au website. That's possibly a little bit upsetting for the Purple Skin Avocado that it didn't get into the URL name. But what an avocado They are born on farms in Queensland, and the one that ended up on my daughter's toast this morning made it all the way to Melbourne, and I feel sorry for that avocado. Why didn't it stay in Queensland? Who wouldn't want to be in Queensland at the moment? But it finished its life on toast in Melbourne with us, and it was delicious. And if you are interested in avocados, if you want avocado recipes, if you just want to experience some avocado love, go to greenskinavocados.com.au. And here's a little boast. We actually have received a thunderous reception, $8 a month subscription from the Prime Minister's speechwriter. Hello, Paul Ritchie, and thank you for supporting the podcast. And it was Paul who said to me, make sure you've got Julian Lisa's speech up. And I did have Julian Lisa's speech up and have had for quite a few years, but Paul was good enough to give me Julian Lisa's email address, and so it was Paul's influence that helped me get Julian as a guest on the podcast, and he's a magnificent guest, as you're about to find out. Here's the interview. Speakola. 
We've celebrated many types of speeches on the Speakola podcast so far, but one we haven't looked at is the maiden speech. And today we're going to do that with what I think is one of the best maiden speeches that's been delivered in Australia over the last few years. And it was delivered by Julian Lisa. He is the member for Barara up in New South Wales, and he's with us on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Julian. Thanks for having me, Tony. Well, tell us a little bit about the thrill of getting elected and having to deliver a maiden speech. At what point does that cross your mind? When did you start preparing yours? Well, Tony, I've wanted to be a parliamentarian since I was 10 years old, and I did a schoolboy project on Australia's Prime Ministers, which we might talk about later in the podcast. So this is something I wanted to do for 30 years. I was 40 when I got elected. And it is, it is a great thrill to, uh, to go through an election campaign where you're on the ballot paper, to have a strong result. And it's very humbling to think of all of these people whose hopes and dreams you, you are carrying with you into the parliament. And then to step on the floor of the House of Representatives for the first time is an extraordinary experience. There are things that even though I'd worked in, in Parliament House previously and I've been there and watched Parliament many times, there's something different about walking into the chamber yourself. It is much brighter in the chamber than anywhere else in the building and you get a real sense of that. And there is a sense too that although New Parliament House was only opened in 1988, that it plus the previous Parliament House, plus going back to the Parliaments of the United Kingdom, you are part of a tradition that uh, goes back thousands of years and there's a weight of responsibility and expectation on your shoulders. So uh, being elected was an extraordinary thing. In terms of the maiden speech, um, the maiden speech is really the opportunity to, for you to introduce yourself to the parliament, but introduce yourself to the country more broadly. Um, often there are speeches where the sort of stock standard maiden speech, somebody says they've got the best electorate in the world, what a nice person their predecessor was, even if they defeated their predecessor, sort of runs through a, a bunch of talking points that are sort of underlie the political philosophy of their party and thanks family and supporters. That's the sort of bog-standard maiden speech. Um, I've been thinking about my maiden speech for some time and what I wanted to say, and I didn't want to do the bog-standard maiden speech. I think this is such an opportunity to introduce yourself and to say something and to do something different. And you mentioned you, you mentioned just quickly in passing that this was a, a dream from the age of 10. Were you the sort of kid that studied the great speeches of the past? Did you have favourites? And did you deliver a memorable early speech, a, a, you know, a high school speech or a, a uni speech that you think made you think you could do this thing? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. The answer is yes. I've, I've always been interested in public speaking and oratory. I was involved in public speaking and debating as a school kid and as a university student as well. I, I enjoyed listening to great speeches. There was a former presenter of the Breakfast Program on Radio National um, who did a, 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 was a cassette series back in those days based on a radio program he'd done about great speeches. And I remember two sets of speeches that he particularly looked at. One was obviously Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech and looked at um, how King crafted that speech and how he threw away his papers and spoke from the heart and sort of ran through some Bible phrases and some phrases from from, from his prayer book and some of the, the, the spirituals that he'd sung, which um, really kind of uh, helps illustrate that speech. And, of course, Winston Churchill. I mean, the extraordinary speeches that he gave during the war um, were just magnificent. The, the use of alliteration, like when he talks about the flag of freedom flying, 
the way in which he used to suck words in his mouth and would labour over word choice, not just for the right metaphor, but for the way it sounded to me was mm. very important. As a high school kid, I was captain of debating and um, my job was to try and make debating cool. And so I used to take the mickey out of myself and make quite funny speeches in the school assembly. And I'd been a councillor when I first got elected. I got elected to local council at the age of 19. And I made quite a memorable speech there. I had a, a mayor. I'm, I'm Jewish. I was representing an area that had the largest Jewish population in New South Wales. And the mayor had made some quite anti-Semitic remarks. And so we had to get up and move no confidence in him. And I thought very closely and carefully about the speech that I wrote there and went away with friends for a weekend and wrote that speech, you know, uh, over a few days there. And what about your bar mitzvah speech? Was, was that a winner? Um, you know, that's going back a, a long time. My, my aunt is a journalist and, you know, as a 13-year-old, I didn't really know what one was supposed to do. And I remember she sat down and helped me write it. And a, a bar mitzvah speech is really a a thank you speech to uh, to people. You know, she she tried to help me with it. I, I remember um, I decided I, I quite like foreign languages that I would say good evening in about a dozen different languages to people. Not that anybody was speaking those languages, but it was me being a bit of a precocious idiot um, uh, at 13 with no kind of real sense of self-awareness. I, I think, um, you know, at, at the time I, I got married um, in 2004, and it was interesting, um, we talk about the sort of running for parliament. That was a speech I spent quite a lot of time on because I wanted to reflect on my family and I wanted to reflect on my wife and the things that I love about her and about her family as well. And I remember afterwards that we had um, my predecessor, Philip Ruddick, came to our wedding. And, you know, as you're saying goodnight to people um, at a wedding, you know, um, you go around uh, the circle and it was Philip stopped me as we were going round and he said, it's time you thought about running for office. It's a, it's a very strange thing to say on your wedding night as a guest, but, uh, you know, this was, as I say, it's something I wanted to do since I was 10, but really I think it was Philip saying it to me then that spurred me on to think about doing it in the, in, in, in the, current, uh, in the current phase of my life. And so you make it, Julian. I don't know, what was the result like in 2016? Was it, was it close? Was it a cliffhanger? Um, Barara has been a traditionally liberal seat. I, I, uh, so the pre-selection is very important here, obviously. I, I won my pre-selection with a result of 85% uh, of the vote. That's, that's really quite unheard of, uh, a result that resounding. Uh, um, and then uh, I held the seat by a sort of 15 16% margin. And um, although it's a traditionally liberal seat, I, I don't take it for granted. You've always got to... Uh, to work with people and make sure that, that they've got a good sense that you're, that you're there for them. So tell us about the speech itself, the writing, the decisions you made in terms of content. I think the, the first thing is to say why I decided this story and why here and, and then. Um, my friend Paul Ritchie, who uh, has written speeches for two Prime Ministers and I, were in a previous pre-selection contest together and we became great friends. And he said to me, Julian, I know you've got a story in you that you've not told people, and I think you should tell that story. And he had no idea what he was talking about. He had assumed that being a Jewish guy, that I would have experienced some anti-Semitism in my life and that uh, that would have shaped me. He had no idea this was coming. And I remember saying to him, I, I called him when I stood for pre-selection in Barara, and I said, I want to run you through what I want to say in Barara. And I told the story of my father's death by suicide. And he said, Julian, don't use that here. That's your maiden speech. 
he said, that is a, that is a story that you need to tell the country. Hmm. So what I, I decided it was a story I wanted to share with people. My father died by suicide in 1996. In 1995, I was elected to council and uh, I was, uh, must have been 19 at the time, sorry, it must have been 20 at the time that he died. And I remember saying to my mum at the time and my younger brother who was 16, 17, look, this is a terrible thing that's happened to our family. I want to make sure that it doesn't happen to other people. I think we should... I should say something and use the small public office that I have to talk about mental health and suicide prevention. And they just weren't ready. Mm. I don't think we were ready as a family. It was all too raw. But this was a story I'd wanted to tell. It's a story because just the, the shaking of the very foundations of your life when, uh, when you lose your father in these tragic circumstances is such that it, it bears telling, and it bears telling in order that others won't go through it. So I suppose I've been looking for an occasion to tell it, and I think this the maiden speech presented such an occasion. And so I bought the person who was my EA in the job that I did before I was an MP. I worked at a university. She came to work with me initially. And our practice was always, I, I like dictating, and my practice was always to dictate serious documents. And I dictated the opening first draft uh, in a session and was just sort of off the cuff retelling of, of, of the the night and I said to her before I gave her the file I said this is going to be hard you don't know this about me and you're about to hear a, a very personal story why don't you type it and tell me how you feel and so she sat down she typed it she came into me with tears streaming down her face and she said that's such a, a sad and beautiful story and I never knew that about you and your family mm. um, so uh, it was then a case of working and reworking and making sure that you had the the, the word choice right uh, for that opening part because if you didn't get the opening part right, the rest of the speech wouldn't uh, w- wouldn't hang. And I, it, I, the opening part was really just the events of the night my father took his own life. Oh, it's, and it is an incredibly beautiful and and spare piece of writing in the sense that. It's it's quite short, but but every detail in it is is a small detail. Is that was there a lot cut out there? Did you have a, a longer story to tell of that night? I I don't I don't think that there was. I mean, I think I I, I really I mean, I think I might have told it in in more words or, or or used some different phrases. But I but but we were but I was really keen just to to tell it as as plainly as I could and in some respect the, the, the plainness of it is um, is part of its impact um, the sparse language that, that, that that's there um, I think um, you know for, for me I, I really wanted to to not just talk about you know how I how I heard my mother scream and then finding the note but I also wanted to reflect on my own conduct that night I told the story about you know it was a, a Friday night and my father had gone off to a, um, a dinner at my brother's school. My brother's a great chess player and it was a sort of chess dinner to celebrate the end of the season for him. And my father said to me, Julian, can you polish your shoe, polish my shoes to help me? And I just, I really didn't want to, I wanted to watch TV or do something that was completely self-centred. And I eventually did it, but with no grace at all. And I regret that so much because... 
the next morning when I woke up, he was gone. Hmm. And that's almost, it's not quite the last interaction, but it was basically the last interaction. And the other thing I told in that period was my father's behaviour in the weeks leading up to his death by suicide. I, I remember on Father's Day, I think it was, I think he, yeah, he died just after Father's Day, and I remember getting him a, a CD of uh, the, uh, the jazz pianist Michael Feinstein. My father loved jazz music and so, so did I. And just thinking about, you know, having just gone through Father's Day uh, here, thinking about what is this Father's Day thing all about? Why do we keep, you know, this sort of strange tradition of of buying these sort of presents for a person who doesn't really need anything uh, to, to, to thank them? And uh, again, just a sense of no grace, but also feeling that something was up with Dad. He was... He was starting to give us these long hugs and, you know, we're always a family that hugged each other, but the long hugs were very strange. And my father um, had a practice at Parramatta, his accountancy practice. We lived in the eastern suburbs. And um, every day he'd drive out there and he knew Sydney so well. He was so proud of his driving and his parking. And the week before he died, he just, he didn't seem to care anymore. Mm. He was clearly in a bad place. You know, we just didn't say anything. And... You have to think the world in 1996 was very different to what it is now in terms of the way in which we talk about suicide prevention or about mental health. And um, when I think about that, I just think about those regrets that I live with of not having been a more gracious son and not having done the things that I wished I'd done, which is say, Dad, what's up? Why are you behaving like this? Are you okay? Are you contemplating suicide? They're questions I wouldn't have known how to ask, but I could have at least said, Dad, what's up? And certainly, I mean, I've had two of my uh, bridal party have, have committed suicide and and uh, I have the same same feelings and the same regrets. And, and everyone will tell you, well, there's nothing and you couldn't have and... And there's no responsibility to, and that, and that no fault falls on you. But you, but you do actually say in the speech, you know, that they say it's a, a, a victimless death, but the people who are left behind um, do suffer. Yeah, well, suicide. I think I used the word was victimless crime. I mean, because it yeah. was, it's still, I think, on, on the on the statute books as a crime. But uh, um, you know, that, that they never think about the loved ones left behind and. You know, um, I remember his funeral was massive. Just, you know, um, they there were people spilling all all over the street um, near the near the funeral parlour where we, the Jewish funeral parlour in in Wallara where we where we had his funeral. And then, usually the the, the funeral custom is um, the same night as the funeral. They have a a gathering of at least ten men uh, back at the home of the. The, the bereaved and that was clearly going to be too big for our home and so they ended up doing it in the synagogue and again the synagogue was completely overflowing and you think here are all these people who had come out to honour my father and yet he felt he couldn't talk to any one of them about anything that was happening in his life and I think that's, that is an enormous tragedy and it's just a reminder there are always people in our lives but it's also our responsibility to look out for our fellow Australians and our friends and our family and our neighbours and just to ask the tough questions. That's more than anything, my reason for talking about this in a public policy sense was to say to people, we've got to have this conversation. Look out for your neighbour and ask the tough questions. And 
we're going to release this episode on Are You OK Day, which is the federally funded initiative to promote that. And for me, it feels like there's varying attitudes to Are You OK Day. There's some people who are right behind it and think it's fantastic and, and, and has imp- imp- vastly improved the way that people connect on these issues and some people think well it's this sort of fleeting thing it's a little bit glib it's a bit hashtag and if you're actually sitting there under the burden of depression it might not be something that particularly lifts you up in fact it might feel like tokenism in the extreme as someone who's who's felt the impact of suicide to such a degree what's your view on the day and how do you feel we are responding as a as a as i guess a federal government to this issue Well, I was very honoured a couple of years ago, I think it was 2017 or 2018, Are You OK? dedicated their national campaign that that year to the work and the inspiration that had come from my maiden speech. They called the campaign Signs because they they saw that I was hit on a point which they believed to be true too, was that people's behaviour changes and too few of us actually look out for those changes and do anything about them. And so having Are You OK? day gets, gives you a chance to focus on starting a conversation. I think it serves a really good purpose because it says to people, um, look, it, it, it gives you a moment to reflect and say, look, who in my life have I been a little bit worried about that, they've, that they're doing different things or that their behaviour's changing and I haven't said anything? And this is perhaps a good time for me to pick up the phone and say, are you okay? What we would say in the suicide prevention space is that That's a good conversation starter. But in many respects, people who are contemplating suicide can easily say, yeah, I'm okay. It's much more confronting to ask them, are you contemplating suicide? Are you thinking about taking their own life? And the more direct question is really important because that's the best chance we have of actually stopping people in their tracks and getting them to admit that they're thinking about doing something. And then we need to equip our society more broadly to know what to do if somebody says, yes, I am. Because I think people feel there's an enormous burden. And look, there's not. Most of us are not psychologists. Most of us are not psychiatrists. Most of us aren't trained mental health professionals. But with the right training, all you need to do, and even if you don't have the right training, people who might be listening to this podcast, if you ask somebody that question, they say yes. Say, can I sit with you while you call Lifeline? Can I sit with you? Can I, can I come and take you to the emergency room of the hospital? They are the two things that, you know, if you can do, get them into the hands of people who can help them, who have got the training, who've got the expertise. You're not going to open a Pandora's box. But failing to ask the question means that we've got, that there are people whose lives we could, uh, we could help that we're not helping. Look, sometimes people will hide it too, Tony. I mean, uh, There are people who don't look like they're suicidal but are getting their life in order and planning and so on and really what they're planning to do is put things in order and then take their own life. So sometimes you can't, even if somebody says, no, I'm I'm fine, you know, if they're not willing to admit it, they're not willing to admit it. But I I think most important thing is to realise we're in a very difficult time at the moment. Pat McGorry has described the, the current mental health epidemic that we're facing as a shadow pandemic. Uh, and he's right, when we've seen in New South Wales alone 8,500 people admitting to uh, um, mental health units um, 
who are under 18, it says that there's a, that this is a very serious moment. I, I see it in the schools and the sports groups in my constituency. Usually I speak to them and it fills my bucket with joy. They are all struggling, whether it's parents, students, support staff, teachers, you know, particularly those people who are trying to juggle work and family. It's why I think the having the, the, the goal of getting people to 70 and then 80% vaccinated and people know that's the goal and that we're sticking with that goal is, is so important in terms of giving people hope that this will pass and we will get through it and life will resume in many respects much as it was. When you talk about community as an antidote to depression um, and saying that a purely medical approach to depression is not the answer, you mentioned that in the speech. Is that still your view? Do you think that we're overly medically focused when it comes to mental health and depression? Yes, I do. Um, look, at the, at the very acute end, um, when you're talking about things like bipolar and schizophrenia, they are clearly medical conditions. Uh, anxiety and depression are also mental con- uh, uh, medical conditions. But I think we have over-medicalised this whole space. And we should remember that not everybody who dies by suicide has a mental illness, and not everybody who has a mental illness will die by suicide. So there's a group of people that a purely medical approach isn't recognising. People talk about situational suicide, and this is particularly the case, I think, for a lot of middle-aged men. Uh, You lose your job, your marriage breaks up, you know, some tragedy happens in your family, children or or, or whatever it may be, and that those things um, uh, send you into a into a spiral, or you just can't see the wood for the trees. It's not that's not necessarily a, a mental health thing. It can be a can be a situational thing, and I think people feeling a sense of loneliness, a, a sense of being alone, is is one of the things that we as a society need to do a better job of. And being involved in community, having a having a belief system, a, a faith, can be very helpful. Though all of that said, my father is is the case that proves that even with those things, it's not necessarily a, a whole-proof antidote. He was very involved in community. He was a person of deep faith, and yet he he, he couldn't see uh, he couldn't see a way clear. And do you? I mean, that was I didn't know whether to ask you that because it's a very personal question. But do you try to work out what it was? You must. I mean, have you ever have you ever come to any sort of resolution? Of course, it's a question we thought about many times, um, you know, in the days and weeks that uh, um, when he first passed, we talked to his doctors, we talked to his his closest friends. Nobody had any any sense of this. There wasn't any, any, uh, um, uh, there wasn't any sign that that, that he was doing this. There was nothing in a health sense that he was, uh, that he was not well. The details i guess that um i think what sets your speech apart is that first of all there's no flagging where we're going here you start with the the patter of your mother's footsteps coming to your room which which sounds like it's going to be one of those standard boxes that are ticked in a maiden speech which is you're going to thank your parents and and indeed you are but the idea that you can use those footsteps you know so so devastatingly in in the opening how did the footsteps come to you as as a thought you know that this is how i'll tell it 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 came to me because it's true 
that my mother did wake me every morning, you know, even as a, you know, I lived at home until I was, uh, uh, until I went to the workforce for the first time uh, when I was about, uh, must have been about 22, 23. And so it was my mum walking to the door every morning. But what really got me about that night, in fact, one of the, one of the visceral memories that I had of that night was this sort of sprint to the door and the sobbing and uncontrollable um, uh, sense of grief that was there. Um, and it was so different. And, and because it was so different and because it was so powerful, that had just been always etched on my mind as, you know, that was the moment that was like, wake up, dad's gone. Um, uh, and... Um, yeah, for, because it was so different to how it usually was. That, to me, was always... I think I think even in the first cut of the speech, when I first dictated it, I started off telling that aspect of the story because it is, as you say, it's such a, you know, mothers and sons, wake up, get out of bed sort of thing to a scream, get up, get out of bed, Dad's gone. Yeah. And the next step after you've addressed the question of suicide is to do the job of honouring your mother and your father and, and you do it nicely as well because you can nod towards your faith. Do I say nachas? Is that the way of pronouncing it? That, that, nachas, that's, that, that's correct, yeah. And that's really nice and, and really neat. Um, it sort of salutes faith and then, and then there's an opportunity to tell, tell uplifting stories about your mother and father. Well, that, that's, that's right. I think what I was concerned about in telling that story was just thinking, well, is this all people will ever think of when they think of my father, that he had this death by suicide and that was tragic for all of us. And I actually, particularly as time has gone on, when I think about my father, I think very little about that night and think so much more about him when I hear the jazz that he loved or I see, you know, um, we are on the eve of Rosh Hashanah when we are recording this podcast. I think about him particularly at this time of year uh, when we're going to uh, observe the, the high holidays. I, My little boy who's three, um, who he obviously never met, looks so much like him and uh, will give me a smile that's very much like my father's. And it's those things that uh, that most often when I think about Dad, I think about. And rather than getting up and saying, I'm a man of faith, you know, my faith teaches me this, or I believe in small business, small business is good because of X, Y, Z, which is the bog standard way of doing these things. I thought I'd tell the story about my parents and their values that they tried to instill in me and their lives and use that as a, as a way of actually, without saying, here are my values, saying this is the things that are important to them. That's the impression they've made on me. That's the sort of person you can expect me to be as a Member of Parliament. That's what you can expect my approach to be without coming out and hitting people and saying, you know, I'm for faith, I'm for small business, um, you know, I'm for, you know, the Anzac tradition, as it were. It was a way of saying, well, that's all part of my story by telling their story. Is there a story of your father that's almost your favourite story of your father when it comes to humour or life together? Is there one that you couldn't tell in the speech but you could tell here that kind of gives a bit of a sense of what sort of a man he was? I think one of the things that I didn't say in the speech about my dad was that he was a very quiet man, but he was just always there. And that's why his suicide was such a, 
a hard thing for 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 me because it is you, you do feel like there's this you know foundation on which you based your life that's suddenly been ripped from under you. He would just he gave us lot. He was a very busy guy. He ran his own accountancy practice. He was a sole practitioner in the suburbs, and yet he gave so much time for my brother and I. He would just he he was the sort of father that. He was the bloke that always took us to, to cricket on a Saturday. He was the guy that came to all the debates on the Friday night. He was the guy that would just, you know, when you were having a bad day and you wanted to have a whinge about the world and so on, he was never too busy just to sit there and and listen. Not a big talker, but he was just a tremendous listener. One of the things I was thinking about him actually in the last couple of days was I've got terrible handwriting and his handwriting was better than mine, but it wasn't fabulous. But he used to make these beautiful birthday cards and cards for different occasions that I've kept. And uh, there's some lovely drawings of us, not, you know, never drawings that are going to win an Archibald Prize sort of thing, but uh, just sort of amateurish drawings of us. And look, and he would write our names in bubble letters and so on. And uh, that sort of side of of celebration uh, of him was lovely. I, I also remember when I stood for council, he came door knocking for me and this is a painfully shy man. I cannot imagine door knocking would have been something he would have enjoyed at all. But he just took to it um, like a duck to water because it was about his son. He wanted to celebrate his son and he wanted his, he wanted the best for his son. That, that, that for me is what, you know, he was very much about both for me and my brother. And I also love the salute to your mother in the speech. And she sounds like a, a dynamo. Um, and, and the fact that you, you talk about her reading Australian history to you as a, as a six and seven-year-old, that she was kind of prepping you for this public life, really, was she? Yeah, my mum my, my has uh, um, got a big personality. She is a, uh, um, yeah, she's, she's a great patriot. She's a... Uh, She's a, a typical Jewish mother in some respects. Um, but one of the things that I thought was always wonderful about growing up in, in our house was that you had a sense that our story was part of the country's story. You know, the fact that my grandfather, her father, had been a POW in Changi, the fact that my great-grandfather, her grandfather, had been at Gallipoli and the charge of the light horse in Besheva. These were great events and great tragedies in Australian history. And that the family had been part of that. There was a connection in our family to that. It was just so special and it brought those events to life. And uh, history was not something you read in a book. It was something about which our family was part of. And just, you know, the tradition in, in my mum's family of, um, you know, my, my grandfather, her dad, who came back from Changi, had a hardware store. That I haven't been to, to the building for, for some years now and I know it's slated for demolition, but the fact that it was still there and we could see it and that... You know, she kept clippings of his store in the that was in some magazine and back in the sixties and so on. And she was always so proud to tell to tell those stories and then to talk about how we're so lucky to be here in Australia and the wonderful freedoms that we have and how different. I mean, we 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 forget sometimes how lucky and how different the country is. And I think my father was his Judaism was very much fundamental to who he was, whereas my mother, it was. It's, yes, I'm Jewish, and we need to understand that, you know, there's a particular state of being that that, that that it is to be Jewish. But for hers, it was, 
we are Australian patriots and we're particularly patriotic because we are so lucky to be Jewish in a country where we don't have to fear anyone, and, and which was extraordinary. That was a sense of, uh, of, of pride for her. Uh, she's perhaps less interested in, in, in the sort of tradition or the philosophy or the spirituality than, than, my, than my father was. But for her, you know, it was a sense of we're here. This is, the, this is a great time to be alive. This is a great time. This is a great place to be. And we're lucky and we should never forget that. And, and that seems to inform what becomes the political section of your speech, which I think you do very skillfully because you introduce it again with a little personal touch. And it's, it's maybe your best joke of the speech, which is that you're... It's, I think it's the only joke. <laughs> That's right. I'd done, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I did a project on Australia's Prime Ministers when I was about 10. You know, as a result of that, um, I asked my parents not for a cricket bat or a BMX bike or any of the usual things that you'd ask for your birthday but for a copy of the Australian Constitution. And uh, I then said, uh, Mr Speaker, I think the Latin term for this is nerdus maximus. Um, (laughs) And the speech desperately needed that because people, I think, you know, I told a very tense and emotional story at the beginning and then even my reflections on my own family, I think, were were quite emotional in a different sort of way, in a positive but still emotional way. People needed the release of being able to have a laugh at something. So, uh, uh, and it it was the bridge the discussion about the history and the constitution to some of my discussion about the importance of our constitution and what I saw as some things that the constitution could could do to help, you know, achieve reform in Australia, um, which I think, you know, is, is still an unfinished project. Well, it is a riveting read, Julian. There's the river trade provisions in the in the middle there, and uh, but I think the stuff that's interested you the most is the the balance of federal and commonwealth power. And and in my de- deep distant past, I was a law student, and I was lectured to by Greg Craven, who gets a, a mention in your speech, and he's a very strong federalist. He believes in states' rights, and too much power has gone to the commonwealth. And it sounds like are you a bit of a disciple, Julian? Uh, yes, Greg is a wonderful friend and mentor to me. Um, he must have been a wonderful person to be lectured by because he's so entertaining and got such a brilliant turn of phrase. But uh, he, like I, have been a... He, he is a very strong federalist. Um, I, like him, rather, am also a very strong federalist. I believe that uh, the Constitution was written by the founding fathers, um, as it were, and they had a particular vision for the country where they would never have imagined the growth of Commonwealth power to the extent that it has over the last 120 years. And that part of the dysfunctionality in our, in our system, part of the inefficiency, is the fact that the Commonwealth just keeps growing and, you know, it keeps getting involved in areas which are real areas of state responsibility. And that wasn't how the system was designed, we need to go back to make it work more efficiently to a way in which the system was more designed. I think um, the problem is that COVID has, has been almost a federalist, in other words, a kind of states writer's dream, because we've we've seen in effect what, what happens when the states have a lot of power. They have powers that people had forgotten they had. They have powers to run the health system. They have powers to run internal borders, which I, I mean... I don't think the, the, the framers of the Constitution would have, uh, would have thought that they would have had those powers. But they certainly had powers to run the health system and they've been, they've been prepared to exercise their muscles there. We've seen in some respects the best of federalism because we've seen the competition among the states. We've seen different states taking different attitudes to things like lockdowns, to things like border closures, to things like the tracking and tracing system. But we've also seen sort of feral federalism where states have, you know, 
gone off and done things where you just sort of sit there and go, well, you know, we're tro- we are we are one country and we're all in we're all going through the challenges of COVID together. What makes your state so special, as it were? Um, I'm I'm still in principle a deep believer in in federalism, and I'm still in principle wedded to the notion that I put forward in the speech that we do need um, the Commonwealth and the states um, to have a sort of a a coming together so they can work out more efficiently how can we have brighter lines in who's responsible for what, how can we see the Commonwealth retreat a little bit more from some areas that it's got involved in over, over a long period of time, which it probably doesn't belong in. But in a practical sense, um, what we've seen from COVID is that, you know, the states are not just subordinate units that are withering on the vine. They've actually got their own powers and they can be actually very powerful at, uh, at a moment such as this. I don't want to turn it into a, a, a half-hour discussion of, of whether states are handling it well or whether the Commonwealth as a unifying hand would have done it better. But it is it is frustrating to me to see something like WA might never see us again the way things are going. They're, they're, <laughs> like a... Uh, at some point, it feels as though there needs to be a, a national thing. And, and I get lots of correspondence from constituents saying, why can't you just go in and sack the Premier of Western Australia? And why can't you just go in and take over the, um, the running of the hospital system and so on? And it's, it's a, I think we're all getting a civics lesson. It's, um, it's just not the way, the way it works. I mean, I, I don't think that the Commonwealth is, has a particularly good record of running things. We are, we are not experienced in service delivery. But we are very good at things like payment systems. And I think if you see the way in which, say, compare the two sets of business relief, the way JobKeeper was rolled out last year and the way in which the payments that are being run out by the states have been run out this year demonstrates that the states aren't particularly good at at payment systems. But then again, we're not particularly good at running things. And I gave a whole list of examples there from hospitals to detention centres to, uh, you know, you name it. The one the one service that we are good at running is the Defence Force because we've had, you know, more than 100 years of experience of doing that. But the states are really expert. They've got the people, they've got the expertise um, in service delivery. And whether that service delivery is good or not isn't a question of whether the Commonwealth could do a better job. It's whether the political party undertaking the particular government in the state at the particular time is doing the better job. And that's a that's a matter for the electors in that state. And I guess you flag the the revenue issue as well, that, that the Commonwealth collects almost all the tax or a lot of the tax. Um, and you suggest that's not what was envisaged and isn't the ideal situation. What Where are you getting at then? And I know you're on parliamentary committees that look at the constitution. What should happen or what do you think is preferable? I'd like to see a much smaller Commonwealth income tax take. You know, one in three dollars that the Commonwealth collects, um, it's probably changed a great deal as a result of the pandemic. I haven't looked at this, but in a pre-pandemic time, one in three dollars that the Commonwealth collects gets sent back to the states. And the states have all of these inefficient taxes, um, stamp duty, land tax and the like, payroll tax. What we need to do is have a very big cut in the federal income tax and have states setting up differential rates of income tax. I think that that is ultimately where, where I'd like to see us move. I, I'm uh, attracted to a number of the proposals and suggestions that have been put up by Dominic Perrottet, the state treasurer in New South Wales. He's certainly not the first person to have done this. Um, Andrew Fraser, who was the 
former Labor Treasurer of Queensland had, had done similar things. I, I was hoping in the last parliament to try and find a couple of people on the Labor side who were interested in, in this, in the federal parliament, and certainly talked to a couple of people, but didn't get a lot of enthusiasm. I remember saying to them, look, um, if it's not your thing, um, are there some other people in, in your party who might be interested in forming a, a non-partisan group just to sort of talk about some of these issues? But uh, there are some people on my side who are interested. There are not too many people on the other side uh, who were. And the joke about the Constitution works so well because it is so dry and legal um, and doesn't have any of the flourishes of an American Constitution. And this has become a big question as we look at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and, and, and the lack of recognition for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the document. Um, you're on committees on this point as well. What, what do you think should happen? Tony, um, uh, as I mentioned it in the, in the maiden speech, because I think it is... Uh, it's very important, the constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, but our constitution's a rule book. Uh, it's, it's not the, uh, the Declaration of Independence. It's not the American constitution. Because it's a rule book, it needs to set up institutions. It doesn't need to have, you know, um, loose language in it that can be interpreted by judges in a way that people can't imagine today but can be used in 5, 10, 20, 50 years' time. Where the Constitution is safest is where it's setting up institutions. It's the reason, you know, I was one of the originators of the voice proposal. I've always been a supporter of it. I'm relaxed about the idea of the voice being in the Constitution. Um, I know that is not the position of, of the government, but that's always been my position. And the reason it's my position is because every time you set up something machinery, it's pretty safe. The court hasn't done strange things with the machinery provisions. It's when you when you add other language to the Constitution that's when the court does strange things with it. There was a court in the 1990s that was trying to find an implied right to equality in the preamble. Now, if you can find that in the preamble, you're a much more creative person than J.K. Rowling. Um, but I think when we're dealing with a legal document, we want to be really careful about the language we're putting in there and we want to make sure that we're setting up things that work with the grain of the Constitution and don't go against it. And is there a particular phrase that you really don't want to go in? Where there is, there's, is there a fight going on over a particular thing that, that some people want in and you want out? No, look, where we are at the moment is um, the process of co-design of the voice um, is concluding and the government has a report on, you know, what the co-design should look like. A panel led by Tom Calmer and Marcia Langton have put that forward. After the government's considered that, in line with the recommendations of a committee I chaired with Pat Dodson on this topic, they can then work out what legal form the voice should take. I'm opposed to putting you know, historical and symbolic language in the preamble. Um, I think that's constitutionally dangerous, but I also think it gives Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people nothing. We will spend an enormous amount of political capital to put words into a document that nobody, very few people know we've got the Australian Constitution. Of those that have it very few people have read it so we're spending enormous political capital to add a line in there that will give people nothing rather than if we're going to go to that effort of spending the capital if we're going to go to that effort of changing the constitution let us put something in place that says to people look when we make a law that relates to aboriginal and torres strait islander people perhaps under the racist power that there should be a mechanism for consulting them about it before we uh, before we enact it. doesn't necessarily mean you have to listen to the advice that's given, but you should actually at least take the time to hear what they have to say. 
if we're talking about the the job of a maiden speech, you absolutely have to talk about your electorate and your constituents and the people who have elected you. What 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 angle did you take here? I, I wanted to acknowledge what was unique about uh, about the constituency um, that it's got lots of small people, small, small business people, that it's got lots of uh, uh, people of faith, and that it's got particular challenges around. Um, infrastructure, particularly roads and telco. I think the the small business community-minded people of faith is what makes it such a beautiful area to represent. Yes, it's physically beautiful because of the bush, but it's actually beautiful because of the people. And, you know, in some respects, people who don't live here who come and see me sometimes say, this is so wonderful. It's like taking a step back in time, the way that people relate to each other, but that's what makes it beautiful. Um, As to the infrastructure challenges, the the main road, North Connects, has been fixed and opening and has taken off even more trucks than we thought off the road and just changed the life for people in the community. That's been great. But the telecommunications has been, has got worse and is a real area of disappointment. And of those three towers that I mentioned in the maiden speech, only one of them has been built. And I've been at war with Telstra and am increasingly at war with the NBN over their provision or lack of provision of service to my community. You mentioned your wife was connected to Barara before you were. What's her link and how historic is that? Well, from my office, I can see the dental practice that her grandfather set up 70 years ago on Pennant Hills Road, where Pennant Hills Road was a two-lane road, one lane each way, and it was so quiet he could play cricket across Pennant Hills Road with one of the shopkeepers on the other side. So the family goes back a long way. Her uncle is still in that practice today, which is a a really amazing thing. She grew up in in Cherrybrook, uh, went to Cherrybrook Public um, as a a primary school student. And uh, it's lovely to represent a community that she grew up in and that her family has such a deep connection to. It's such a beautiful place. We actually stayed there for a week during the Sydney Olympics, came up from Melbourne and stayed in Pennant Hills and it's, it's beautiful, a glorious part of the world. It really is. I, I, I feel very blessed. And, and you had to thank her as well. Any parliamentarian who fails to thank their wife or husband, I imagine, uh, fails maiden speech 101. And, and yeah, so that, that, that I guess is the last job that you had to complete. People think it's cliched a bit, a, a bit because that's the reason, because everybody does it. But the truth is that the political life, I, I, I literally could not do this job without my wife. There are days where everything is going wrong and without the support of your, your wife or your husband, as the case may be, it will be a very lonely and difficult job. When you are out doing things with community, when, you were, when I was out preparing to run for, for 10 years, it was time, it was her time that I was taking, a time I could be with her and our time with her and, and, and our son. So they really are the people that are giving up so much. But also um, she shares the joys with me, but I think she feels the setbacks, as all political spouses do so much more. I remember uh, when I was the runner-up in the, in the Bradfield pre-selection, which was my one pre-selection before this one, she she felt it more keenly than I did because, uh, you know, uh, um, if your wife or husband really... That they, they get you in a, in a different way and they love you in a different way to uh, to anybody else. They don't like to see you hurt, a bit like a parent. It's a, but it's a different sort of love. And, um, you know, I, I just, I couldn't do this without her. She does a lot and gives up a lot to allow me to do it. 
for me, you know, it's uh, every day is is a is a challenge and exciting. And Joanna is there dealing with the sort of uninteresting aspects of uh, of living with me. Not necessarily always the highest highs, but certainly the low lows and just the sort of the daily life. And and, and not to I think people who who do this and and don't have that family support. I think it must be so much harder. I actually don't know how you do it without that. And what was it like? I mean, standing there, delivering it. Do you have any memories of delivering the speech? Um, I, I have the memory of, I mean, the, the gallery was really packed and I have the memory of looking up into the gallery. Just I'd gone over the speech so many times. I, I wanted to make sure that the delivery was good and clear and you know, that I'd paused in the right places and that I hadn't rushed too much and that it had gone to time. And this is the other thing. Um, I think it was Darren Hinch who was elected about the same time as I was. He was supposed to do this in 20 minutes. I think he was still going after more than an hour. And I think that's both unfair to the people listening, but it's also unprofessional. And if you cannot, nobody can really concentrate for 20 minutes on a speech. It's a, it's a big thing to ask somebody to do. So your job is really to be as strict as possible as you can on the 20 minutes. And I was watching the clock tick down to the 20 minutes, and mine is basically just on 20 minutes. So um, being conscious of, uh, of that too, and then just thinking, making sure that, I've, that, that I got to the end and had proper pause at the end so that the end bit, you know, really, really sunk in as well. Did you find it hard not to cry when you were writing it? Was it a was it what was your decision on emotion? Because I imagine this is about as tough as as most parliamentarians would attempt in terms of a, a speech in the chamber. Were you worried about that? So um, I should I should talk about the, the the writing of the rest of the speech and about how I how I overcame that. As I say, the, the first lot was a dictation I'd done for my EA. And then other bits I wrote, we, we, my wife and I went on a holiday to Hawaii, actually, uh, just after the, the election, and I wanted to go there so I could do a bit of writing. And we actually took, uh, we went away with, with my mum and my stepdad. And I wanted to ask my mum there for permission to give the speech. And I thought, we'll go away, we'll do it in a lovely setting, and then I'll read it to her. Because if she wasn't comfortable with it, I wasn't going to be able to give it. And um, she cried and she said, you know, how beautiful it was. One of the things I hadn't realised is I'd read it to my brother then when, when I got back to, to, Australia, to Australia and had a bit of a chat with him. And, you know, here it's me delivering a speech. It's my story, but it's his story too. And so he had a lot of people, you know, he works in the tourism industry now and he's a lot of people, he's very senior executive there. And he had a lot of people who'd never known this story about him coming up and asking him about that because suddenly that very public story about him and his family, not told by him, but told by his brother, is out there and thinking about the effect that would have on him. So I was only prepared to do this if the two of them were prepared to give me permission. I was also trying to work out, well, how do I work the federalism stuff in too and, uh, and just thinking about writing, writing those different chunks at different times. So some I wrote on the plane, some I wrote over, overlooking a beach, some I wrote in the office and then just trying to piece it together. But I wanted to make sure that my initial period in the parliament from July when we got elected to September when I gave the speech, that I'd actually use the time to focus on the speech. Obviously, it's not the only thing I did during that time, but I was very cautious about making sure what was I doing to advance the speech every week? You know, how was I getting myself into the zone to make sure that 
that I had um, enough time so that the, the word choice would be right. And then I showed it to a group of people that I uh, that, that that I trusted um, uh, and that could give could could help just sort of polish up a, a, some some of the aspects and give me some feedback on the speech. Um, I'd given it so many times that by the time I gave went to give it, I thought, look, this speech I'm almost on sort of autopilot. And then a bombshell happened. Yeah. The week before my maiden speech, my grandmother passed away. And the morning after she passed away, she was in her 90s. She'd lived a long life, a long and happy life. She, she died in her sleep and we'd gone down to see her the night, the night before. And I had the chief executive of Lifeline in here because I wanted to read the speech to him because I wanted to do two things. One, just to check that in making the speech, I wasn't going to make things worse. And number two, in order that my staff as a result of the speech, if we had lots of calls in the office of people contemplating suicide to make sure we were trained to know what to do and what to say. And I had no trouble doing the spe- reading the speech, but he came in and I've known him for several years and I just bawled. I was a mess and I thought, oh, goodness, if, if this happens on the day of the speech, I'm in real trouble because I won't be able to give it. Um, but I think that was more in reaction to my own grieving for my grandmother than it was in relation to the speech. By the time I went to give it, it had been, you don't want to lose it so you're a robot, but you wanted to just ensure that you were conscious of what you were going to say and the the effect it would have on you. And what I think helped me was just seeing so many friends and supporters there in the gallery who were there who'd been willing me on to be there this day. Almost none of them um, would have had any sense that this was the speech I was going to give. And then, Julian, you need a conclusion. I thought you found a really skillful hinge here where you you don't refer explicitly again to the suicide and I guess the darkness of that opening, but at the same time, it's there. You can, you can hear it in a line like, I come here with the certain knowledge that no one lives a perfect life, that we all need help and community in good times and hard times. And it feels to me like that sentence does the job of, of nodding towards the front of the speech, but also taking you out on an uplifting and positive note. It, it- Thank you, thank you, Tony. I, I think it did uh, it did that, but it it also was maybe a bit humble about um, about what I've done in my own experience here. That there's nothing special about me. So many of my colleagues have done have gone through tremendously difficult times in their life, and I didn't want people to sit there and think, "Oh, Lisa, he lost his dad. Yeah, this is a a sob story, you know, just because he wants to be a bit." different and special and so on. I didn't want to have any sense of that. I wanted it to be, to acknowledge that, yeah, this is my story, but that doesn't mean that other people in the parliament or other people in the country don't also have that, their struggles. Are, they, their struggles are just different. And I think being a bit humble about our own experience is really important. Um, it's, I, I try to take a, you know, a modest approach to, uh, to public life um, um, I think it's the the best way to to go. And then I, then I said, well, what what gets me through? And I I really think the three things that get me through is my my, my sense of my my faith, um, my my sense of my family, and my sense of the fact that you know people have been here before. We've we faced hard times before, and we'll get through it. Uh, and that's why I said I, I think I draw strength from uh, 
In fact, you've, you've probably got it there, Tony. Would, would you do me the favour and, and, and read the last bit? I will. Um, you do. You use a, 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 a beautiful repetition of I draw strength. You say, I come here with the certain knowledge that no one lives a perfect life, that we all need help and community in good times and hard times. But I draw strength from the example of my family. I draw strength from my faith. I draw strength from Australia's traditions of service. And I draw strength from our unique Australian story of progress, epitomised by the story of the individuals who persevered and wrote our constitution. Uh, yeah, no, that, that, that bit is right. And then I think I tried to wrap it up by saying, often people say, well, what are you here to do? What's your whole purpose? What, what sort of country do you want to see? You know, I wanted to see a strong, free, confident and prosperous country. That's, for me, what I think our, our, our job should be uh, as members of parliament and uh, if I can achieve those things as a member of parliament or contribute to those things as a member of parliament and help put in place policy reforms that achieve those things then I've done my job. And you've done your job as a speaker as well, cue standing ovation um, and I mean a huge response to the speech it must have been amazing and bizarre in the aftermath it was it was around the country. Uh, it was amazing, Tony. I think one of my friends said I broke the internet. A quarter of a million people saw it on my Facebook page alone. Um, and I had people from all around the world contact me. I had uh, Our office was deluged with correspondence. It probably wasn't really until, you know, this was September, probably wasn't really until about March the following year uh, that I wasn't getting, you know, still correspondence and people requesting to meet with me. So it was probably six months. And then even today, it is really... A very humbling thing almost still it used to be until quite recently not a not a week would go by but even now not a month will go by without somebody saying something about the maiden speech to me um i send out that speech to every new elector that comes into barara because i want them to know something about me uh, i want them to know when they see my poster about or when they see um, a story with me in the newspaper that i'm not just a cardboard cutout that I'm a real human being who's got a real life and real experiences and, you know, has real hopes and dreams for our community and our country. And, Julian, when you give your son the Book of Prime Ministers for his 10th birthday, <laughs> um, do you think you'll be in it? <laughs> I'd rather give him a book of uh, Australia's greatest investment bankers or, 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 um, or greatest wiggles or something like that. Uh, he could keep me in the... Uh, in the luxury to which I wish to become accustomed in my retirement. Uh, now, look, um, uh, I, I, I think it's a strange, strange world to be a parliamentarian's child, and uh, um, I tr we, we try to keep life as normal as possible for him. But he also has the opportunity to to come out and uh, and do a bunch of community events with me, as he does. Um, and one of the things I've noticed is he's a very good talker, and he'll go up to people, to other kids in parks and adults, and just chat with them and. Uh, that's no doubt in part because uh, he's seen that that's what his dad does and uh, that's just par for the course, I suppose. Well, we'll leave it there. We'll finish on a story about fathers and sons because this is a speech, I think, that, that sits in the heart of all of us who have fathers and are fathers ourselves and, and have been sons. Um, and so, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about it, Julian. Thank you, Tony. It's been an honour and a privilege to be involved in your podcast, and I wish you well.
Nicola. Are you open to new ideas? I'm not. Are you intellectually curious? I used to be. Well, if you are either of those two things, you should subscribe to The Podcast Reader, which is a new publication, which publishes selected transcripts of the world's best long-form podcasts. It's like burying yourself in long-form podcasts' greatest hits. They are transcripts edited for readability, and this is a hard copy magazine. 10,000 copies have hit newsstands in the UK, Australia, the EU, and the USA, And for addition to Mark Cuban, A Maverick Who Made It, Isabella Tree, Rewilding, David Sloan Wilson, Evolution of a Renegade, and Martina Navratilova on Shaping Herself. I follow her on Twitter. She retweeted me once. In fact, she might be my most famous ever retweeter. I posted a Vaclav Havel speech, his New Year's Day speech from 1990, one of the great speeches of all time, of course. None of that is covered in the interview on Shaping Herself, but the magazine is excellent. It is called The Podcast Reader, episode two out now. Go to podread.org or go to their Twitter page at podreadmag. We do love a maiden speech on the Speakola website. We've got Mary Astor up there, the first female MP in the UK. We've got Enid Lyons, the first female MP in Australia. We've also got Bernadette Devlin, who was just 21 when she gave a searing maiden speech at the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland. We've got Benjamin Disraeli. We've got Myrie Black. We've got Heidi Allen. We've got Pete Khalil, who talked about his childhood as an Egyptian migrant and his love for Peter Dacos. But this is right up there amongst the best. Julian Lisa, the member for Barara on the 14th of September, 2016. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As a child, the sound of my mother's footsteps coming towards my bedroom to wake me in the morning was a reassuring feature of daily life. Inevitably, I was awake before she made the door, but the rhythm, the sound and the intensity of her walk were unmistakable. Each morning, the moment would arrive when she'd fling the door open with that effervescent greeting, Time to rise and shine. (laughs) Twenty years ago this month, my mother approached my room to wake me, but it was with a very different sound, pace and tempo. Seared on my mind from that night was the speed of her approach and her scream as she flung the door open of my bedroom sobbing, Dad's gone. Dad's gone. I got up from my bed to comfort my mum, trying to calm her. I went down the hall to my father's office where he worked late into the night for his clients. There I found his pyjamas in a pile and on the glass top table in the hall was a note. Like so many of the notes from my father, written in red pen on the back of a used envelope. It said simply, I'm sorry Sylvia, I just can't cope. Love, John. I felt a great emptiness ripping at my stomach. I went to the garage and saw the car was missing. We called the police and later they came round to tell us they'd found my father's body at the bottom of the gap at Watson's Bay. There's a point in life when you're supposed to become a man. As I stood on the veranda and watched the sun come up that morning, I knew my day had come. My father loved music. He played 2CH on the radio from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to bed. Easy listening music was the soundtrack of my childhood.
But the day he died, the music died with him, and it was years before I could listen to his music again without tearing up. Over the past 20 years, I've gone back over the week leading up to my father's death too many times, and I keep thinking back to the signs he was giving us. Although we'd always been a family that hugged each other, my father started giving us all these very long hugs. My father prided himself on being a great car parker, and yet the week before he died, he didn't seem to care how he parked. In hindsight, it was clear something had changed. I knew it, but I didn't say anything. You ask yourself, what could I have done? What should I have said? Could I have reached out in a way that I didn't? Could I have said, as we say now, are you okay? I reflect on my own conduct the night before my father died, when he asked if I could help him polish his shoes before he left for a dinner at my brother's school. I remember as a self-absorbed 20-year-old the petulance and rudeness with which I waved away the opportunity to help my father, a man who so often helped me and there's not a day that I don't regret it. Suicide, they used to say, is a victimless crime, but they never count the loved ones left behind. In the past 20 years, we've changed our approach to suicide, depression and mental health. And while there's rightly been a focus on the mental health of adolescents and young people, we must remember people suffering at other stages in their lives are equally important. And sadly, the number of older people taking their own lives is increasing. My own father was 55. In these past 20 years, we've spent millions on mental health and suicide prevention. Every government's tried. But despite all the goodwill, it's a fight we're losing. In my own electorate, we have more than 100 people take their own lives in the last eight years. And across Australia, eight people die by suicide every day. All this shows that government money alone will not solve this epidemic. Treating depression as purely a medical issue is not working. Rather, we need to rebuild caring communities where people know and notice the signs and acknowledge the people around them where we ask, are you OK, or more directly and importantly, are you contemplating suicide? And we need to create the conditions where those who are thinking about suicide feel free and comfortable enough to ask for help. Through my work in this place, I want to help empower Australians to build a greater sense of community. I've seen active engagement in community combat loneliness and enable people to see a world outside themselves. In a society where people are more pressured, more isolated than ever before, active engagement in community fosters civility, courtesy and understanding, virtues that are all too often undervalued and supplanted by anger. There's a role for government in supporting organisations and individuals that reach out to the socially isolated in our community, even in the face of continued rejection. And there's a role for government in fostering innovative solutions that address suicide prevention. I hope that those innovative solutions will enable communities to learn from what has worked and connect other efforts across the country. I want to acknowledge the Prime Minister's personal interest in suicide prevention and the leadership he and the Health Minister took in devising the National Suicide Prevention Strategy. As a member of this House, I want to do what I can to pierce the loneliness, the desperation and the blackness that people who suffer depression feel. During my time here, I'll always be an advocate for better mental health policy. When I think of my father, though, mostly I think not of the way he died, but rather of the way he lived. My father John was an only child. His father was a pharmacist. And his mother and her family escaped Nazi Germany in 1936 for the freedom and sanctuary of Australia. 
My father was an accountant. He had his own practice at Parramatta. As a child, I'd go with him to the office or visit clients in their homes, businesses and factories. He knew their lives, their families and their ups and downs, when they succeeded and when they struggled, when they were failing and when they were flourishing. He was a friend they saw once a year to help them comply with the law and get their affairs in order. But even more than that, he was an advisor on how they could get on with and grow their businesses. To the extent that I become an effective member for Barara, it will be because of Dad's example of professionalism, trust and care in working for his clients and the personal touch they loved him for. Dad was a man much involved in his community. He sat on the board of our local synagogue, he sat on a theatre board, he was involved in the school my brother and I attended. Dad was hardworking, diligent and prided himself on doing things properly and by the book. He was quiet, unassuming, patient and slow to anger. He had a husky voice that made him sound like Louis Armstrong. <laughs> he and my mother Sylvia gave me three great gifts, my life, my faith and my education. My father instilled in my brother Lindsay and me an important set of values courtesy, civility and fair dealing with everyone with whom he interacted. The need to give back to the community and get involved. And a deep sense of faith and love of the joys of Judaism. And the sense shared by all Jews that our story is part of a much larger story. That we should be, in Jonathan Sachs' words, true to our faith while being a blessing to others regardless of their faith. While I don't always live up to my father's ideals, his are the fundamental values which have shaped my life. There's a Jewish idea that one should bring joy or nachas to one's parents. I hope that my election to this place would have brought him as much nachas as it does to my mother and the rest of my family. It's to my mother Sylvia that I owe the greatest thanks for being here today. Her courage and her unconditional love for my brother and me has sustained our family through celebrations and sorrows. With an unshakable belief that anything was possible for her boys, she created a home filled with love, stability and opportunity. Nothing's ever been too much for her. But of all her gifts, the enthusiasm for active citizenship, the patriotism she instilled in my brother and me, and the fact that hopefully we are happy, well-rounded and grateful Australians is her greatest contribution. My mother Sylvia is a fifth generation Australian. Her grandfather was a Gallipoli Anzac and rode at the charge of the light horse at Besheva. Her mother, Barbara, who passed away last week, aged 95, served as a nurse during the in the Australian Army during the Second World War. My mother's father, Sam, served in the ill-fated 8th Division and was taken prisoner in Changi and survived the horrors of the Burma Railway. The war left my grandfather with a stammer and a steely determination. What kept him alive in those dark days was a dream to come home and start his own hardware business, which he did after the war employing many of his fellow former POWs. The prosperity that my, father, my grandfather created was due to his hard work and ingenuity in predicting the need for building supplies to meet a post-war building boom. My mother's Anglo jury gave her a particular take on being an Australian. Fiercely patriotic about Australia and loyal to the Crown, she realised the historical peculiarity to be both Jewish and free and that had such an impact on me. As I grew up towards the end of the Cold War with its threat to freedom everywhere, my mother would constantly remind us of the responsibility that comes with the freedoms that we enjoy in Australia, to be thankful for it and to preserve it whenever it's threatened, because as she would teach me, most people in most places at most times are not free. 
As a child, my mother read to me about Australia's history and explained how our own family story fit into the broader Australian story. A story of explorers, soldiers, farmers, shopkeepers and professionals, people willing to chance their arm who carved out a nation in this physically isolated but socially tolerant land. My own contribution to this story will be influenced by the combination of my father's quiet virtues and my mother's perhaps slightly less quiet but always deeply patriotic civic virtues. <laughs> it was that instilled sense of history and an early interest in politics that prompted me to want to serve in this place. And so around the, the time of my 10th birthday, I asked my parents not for a BMX bike or a cricket bat, but for a copy of the Australian Constitution. <laughs> <coughs> Mr Speaker, I think the Latin term for such behaviour is nerdus maximus. <coughs> Our Constitution is unique and worthy of celebration. It belongs to everyone. It was written and debated all over, that, all over the country, led by that great generation of liberal and conservative barrister parliamentarians. Mm. Americans and Canadians wrote their constitutions in secret. Modern constitutions tend to be drafted by legal academics, but the Australian constitution was written in Australia by Australians for Australian conditions. From the School of the Arts at Tenterfield to the Courthouse at Corowa, from the drawing rooms of Adelaide to the libraries of Hobart, in parliamentary chambers in Sydney, Adelaide and Melbourne, and of special significance for me, on the Hawkesbury River, in the Barara electorate, on a paddle steamer called the Lucinda, where our first Prime Minister, Sir Edmund Barton, and our first Chief Justice, Sir Samuel Griffith, drafted the judicial power of the Commonwealth. The Australian Constitution has provided the basis for stable government and economic prosperity for over a century. At a time when constitutional structures and political systems around the world are breaking down, Australia's constitutionalist achievement should be a source of enormous pride. Our constitution establishes our unique Australian democracy. The constitution matters as much for what it doesn't say as for what it does. Our constitution contains no symbolic language and no bill of rights. Its sparse legal, lang its sparse legal language is its strength. It's meant that only the most creative judges have been able to invent implied rights to frustrate the democratic will. <laughs> the constitutions figured prominently in my career and contributions to the public debate. As the youngest elected delegate at the 1998 Constitutional Convention, I remain a committed constitutional monarchist, like my friend and former employer, the member for Warringah. I see it as the best system of government of all the available alternatives. In 2009, I worked with a broad cross-section of Australians to ensure the defeat of an Australian Bill of Rights, because I believe in the capacity of the political process to solve problems, and I'm against an American-style judiciary which makes political rather than legal decisions because of their Bill of Rights. In 2013, with the members for Goldstein and Mitchell and some senators from the other place, I led a scrappy but successful insurgency against Labor's plans to have the Commonwealth intervene in local government. In important public debates, in a time of increasing polarisation of views, we need people who can build consensus and find the middle ground. And so in more recent times I've worked with Indigenous leaders and constitutional conservatives to find a constitutional way to make better policy about and give due recognition of Indigenous Australians without avoiding, while avoiding the downsides of inserting symbolic language into a technical document which requires interpretation by judges. Today, 
the Constitution has an important role to play in the next chapter of Australia's unfinished economic reforms. The next item on our reform agenda must be to address the inefficiencies in our Federation. The States and the Commonwealth should have more clearly delineated responsibilities and the finances to deliver them. Instead, today, we have a system of buck-passing, duplication and inefficiency, a lopsided federation that the framers would not recognise. Canberra should not have a monopoly on finance and policy. It's become fashionable to think that whenever the states fail, Canberra will do a better job. But pink pats, school halls and the Mersey Hospital demonstrate that service delivery is not always Canberra's forte. Canberra collects too much tax while every year the states come begging because they don't raise enough money to finance their own services. Addressing this dissonance in our federation should deliver less red tape, less duplication, better roads, better schools, better hospitals designed and run to meet local needs. It should also lead to greater policy innovation as competition between the states drives excellence. I've had the privilege of working for two of Australia's great federalists, High Court Justice Ian Callanan, who honours me with his presence here today, and Professor Greg Craven. I've also spent several years thinking about federalism as the Vice President of the Samuel Griffith Society. I'm not the first person to seek to propose reform of the Federation on a federalist model. Coalition and Labor politicians have pursued this option before. But every time such solutions have been proposed, they've been undermined by short-term politicking. Previous economic reforms had a greater chance of success when there was cross-party consensus. The same approach is needed to the reform of our federation today. We know the task is to deliver the states more of their own source revenue and to lighten Canberra's footprint in areas of policy for which it has little expertise. What's been lacking is the political cooperation to make it happen. I therefore propose to look for reform partners in all parties in this parliament to establish a group to build consensus for reform of fiscal federalism. Reform of, of this scale can be daunting, and while we may not complete the task while we're in this place, nor are we free to desist from it. But by far my most important task is to serve the people of Barara with the full measure of my devotion. The electorate of Barara was created in 1969. Running from the banks of the Hawkesbury River to the M2 motorway, the people of Barara are community-minded and self-reliant. That's why there's a greater number of volunteers, people of faith and small business owners than in many other communities. Despite its strengths, the Barara community is one that faces major infrastructure challenges. Pennant Hills Road is one of the worst roads in Australia. But now Liberal state and federal governments are working with the private sector to deliver North Connects, which will remove 5,000 trucks from Pennant Hills Road every day improving air quality and reducing noise while completing the missing national transport link between the M1 and the M2. It's not the only infrastructure issue we face. Other roads like New Line Road need widening to take into account the growing population in the electorate and in surrounding areas. And the undulating hills and sparse population in the rural areas make mobile connectivity difficult. But the Coalition's mobile black spot program is starting to address this infrastructure challenge. I wish to thank the people of Barara for giving me the extraordinary opportunity to serve them. My first duty will always be to them. I'd like to thank the members of the Liberal Party in Barara and my friends and supporters beyond that organisation for all their work to see me come into this place. Many have travelled fast distances and waited many hours to be here today. 
The best way I can demonstrate my gratitude to them is through the quality of my service here. In that, I hope to emulate the style of my three predecessors. Philip Ruddock, who through his record term helped build an ethnically diverse country with strong, secure borders. Professor Harry Edwards, who was a leading economic thinker on microfinancing and one of Australia's most distinguished lawyers, the first member for Barara, Tom Hughes QC, who's here in the gallery today. I'm also honoured that my friend Heather Henderson, the daughter of Sir Robert Menzies, is here today. For six and a half years, I had the privilege of running the centre named after her father. And I acknowledge Tom Harley, my chairman at the Menzies Research Centre, who's here. Sir Robert Menzies was a poor country boy from a one-horse town who, by dint of his own hard work and intellect, rose to lead his profession, his party and his nation. Our task as Liberals is to create the conditions so the next generation's Robert Menzies can rise and thrive. I'm conscious of the huge responsibility involved in being the Liberal member for Barara, and I will seek to carry on Sir Robert Menzies' traditions of policy and principle in all I do in this place. Finally, I wish to thank my wife, Joanna. If my parents gave me the foundations for a good and worthwhile life in years past, it's Joanna who anchors me in the present and always points me forward with optimism to the future. She's the reason more than any other that I'm here. Joanna introduced me to Barara. It was her home before it was mine. I couldn't have embarked on this journey without her. She's smart, accomplished, beautiful and challenging, and she's never lost faith in me. She's in fact perfect in every way, except for that occasion 11 years ago when her judgment clearly failed her and she decided to marry me. <laughs> Joanna, I love you with all my heart. Every new member, Mr Speaker, comes into this place with life experience from which they can draw strength. I come here with the certain knowledge that no one lives a perfect life, that we all need help and community in good times and hard times. But I draw strength from the example of my family. I draw strength from my faith. I draw strength from Australia's traditions of service. And I draw strength from our unique Australian story of progress, epitomised by the stories of the individuals who persevered and wrote our constitution. Reform is never easy, but the opportunity to participate in the public debate and advocate for the cause I believe in, a strong, free, confident and prosperous Australia, fills me with the greatest enthusiasm. A lengthy but excellent episode. And imagine how long it would have been if we had a featured Darren Hinch's speech. Ooh. Thank you so much to Julie and Lisa, both for your time and for a public speech that is underpinned by such a personal story. And I appreciate that you discuss it further with me. Thanks to my sponsors, the podcast reader, podread.org, and also greenskinavocados.com.au. Big thank you to Matt Dower, who is the pots and pans on the Sizzletown podcast. Sizzletown, probably my favourite ever comedy podcast. And Matt does all the audio production. The man is a genius, and he did reduce the hum on my audio track. Thank you, Matt. Thank you to Dave Bridie for the Speakola theme music. And finally, I'll finish where I started. It is Are You OK Day? 
Most people have zero expertise when it comes to counselling or mental health treatment, but I have lost two of my bridal party to suicide and wish every day that we had have known more, that we had have had the conversations and that we had another chance. So if you're looking into the tunnel and seeing mainly darkness, I bet there's someone back in the light who's really keen to drag you back up. So give us a chance. Thanks for listening. Until next time.